You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'd been walk-away for nearly a year before I understood this. That's what walk-away is, not walking out on society, but acknowledging that in Zotta world, we're problems to be solved, not citizens. That's why you never hear politicians talking about citizens. It's all taxpayers. As though the salient fact of your relationship to the state is how much you pay. Like the state was a business and citizenship was a loyalty program that rewarded you for your custom with roads and health care. Zotas cook the process so they get all the money and own the political process, pay as much or as little tax as they want. Sure, they pay most of the tax because they've built a set of rules that gives them most of the money. Talking about taxpayers means that the state's debt is to rich dudes and anything it gives to kids or old people or sick people or disabled people is charity we should be grateful for since none of those people are paying tax that justifies their rewards from Government Inc. Cory Doctorow is a blogger for BoingBoing.net. He's the author of books including Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Eastern Standard Tribe, Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town, Overclocked and Makers, Content, a collection of essays, novels for young adults, Little Brother, the sequel, Homeland, For the Win, and Pirate Cinema with Charles Strauss. He wrote Rapture of the Nerds. His newest novel is Walkway. Thank you for joining me, Cory. Thank you so much for having me again, Rick. Cory, this novel feels quite a bit like a sequel to your very first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. What's the relationship? I think of it more as a prequel, but in that kind of John Varley sense where Varley wrote these short stories where he didn't bother himself with the foolish consistency of, of trying to make the continuity work. Wherever there were things that he could borrow from earlier stories that made a later story better, he took it. But wherever elements of that story were inconvenient for, for a, a semi-continuation, he just jettisoned them. I always loved how ballsy that was. And Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, the timelines don't quite work. I think for this world to be 200 years before Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom would have to be set 200 years after that. And that doesn't make any sense. But nevertheless, it, it is a, an attempt at kind of imagining an intermediate step between our world and a world like that. You were talking about time spans, and this made me think that one of the things about this novel and science fiction in general nowadays is that uh, we're well advised to avoid the Philip K. Dick effect where you end up reading novels set in the far future that are – according to him, 1999. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, or or what Robert Silverberg calls the Robert A. Timeline phenomenon, where, you know, Heinlein had these allegedly precise uh, timelines of future phenomena where he, he um, put very precise dates on very vague predictions, which is a lovely trick, right? It, it lets you at any given moment show that Heinlein was prophetic by finding some phenomenon in the world that vaguely resembles something he predicted for that date and declare him to have uh, seen further than any of us could. Yeah, I'm very skeptical of the enterprise of fortune telling. Uh, you know, uh, in, in Niven and Pornell's Inferno, which is a uh, science fiction retelling of, of Dante, they, uh, they, they put the fortune tellers in Dante's pit of, of fortune tellers, which is um, 
damned souls have their heads twisted around 180 degrees. They're stripped naked, put in a pit full of molten human feces, whipped by demons, and then weep down their own backs into their own ass cracks. And they put the science fiction writers in there with them for, for having committed false prophecy. And, you know, if prophecy were possible, it would mean the future was foreordained. And if the future was foreordained, it would mean what we did wouldn't affect it. And if what we do, do doesn't affect the future, we might as well just kill ourselves now. So I am way more interested in science fiction as an intervention to change the future than as a, uh, a means of merely predicting it, what a boring future would be if we could predict it. I, I think that that's a, a really interesting approach because uh, this book is very political. It makes me think about, as I read about this really convincingly created future, all I can think about is the present mm -hmm. and the things it suggests in the present, even though I'm captivated by the story in the future. And I think that part of that is that the distance between this world and our world gives us a perspective to look at our world with fresh eyes. Sure. I think that's a common move of science fiction, you mm -hmm. know, to, to be like the the – to, rather than trying to build an accurate model to try to build a usefully inaccurate one, you know, the doctor who, uh, who, who swabs the back of your throat and, and rubs it on a Petri dish is not trying to make a model of your body that is faithful to it. She's trying to make a model that is inaccurate in a highly specific way where one salient fact about your body, whatever gu that gunk is in the back of your throat, is the only thing that matters in this dish uh, that is a world in a bottle. And from that, she can diagnose something about you. And a science fiction writer can pluck a, a technology or phenomenon out of the big, complicated, interdependent, you know, multivariant world and act as though that were the only thing in the world. You know, do the physicist trick of imagining a perfectly spherical cow of uniform density on a frictionless surface to try and understand something about you, about our world, uh, that, that gives us insight into the world we're living in. One of the things I, I know about this book is that you are very pithy. And this book is, I think, a little bit, uh, feels maybe a little bit different from some of your previous work. The ideas are just popping off the page. It's like an effervescent drink of science fiction. <laughs> you know, I, I have a, a thesis about why that's being said about this book. I had a slightly different writing methodology in this book. Mm. I um, I uh, am a pretty glib person by nature. My sentences usually come out pretty smooth. And I'm a good intuitive plotter. And usually my rewrites are very light and um, really revolve around like polishing the sentences. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I finished this book, it was 60,000 words longer than I wanted it to be and that my, my agent and editor wanted it to be. And so I thought I can make some really big structural cuts. I can take out whole scenes. But before I do that, why don't I go see if, there are any, if there's any excess verbiage? And so that is not a thing I'd ever done much of. I started to peel off every day 5,000 words of the book in sequence and go through it and see if there were any extraneous words that I could remove. And it, I had been tweeting for a couple of years at that point. And so I'd gotten really good at boiling down <laughs> sentences, finding efficiencies in, in, in linguistic expression. And what I found was that the first day it maybe took me an hour, but I got from 5,000 to 4,000 words. By the end of it, in 20 minutes, I could squeeze 1,000 words out of any arbitrary 5,000-word chunk of the book. I got most of that 60,000 words out just through line edits. And it, 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 the insight that I got from that that I, I have been sharing with my writing students since, and it's kind of obvious when you think about it, is that practicing something you're good at gives you tiny little dividends at the margin. Practicing something you're bad at is a lot less psychically pleasant because you're reminding yourself of something that's not something that you take pride in. 
but boy, do you make a lot of advances quickly. And so I feel like I went from 10% good at pithiness by, by default to 70% good in the course of one edit job, whereas, uh, you know, those, those exercises in, in shining up the sentences in my previous books maybe took me from 98 to 98.1%. You know, also, too, the other benefit of that is that by removing the words, the the resultant grammar and the resultant world creation is about, I'd say, maybe 15% to 20% denser. Hmm. It's a little less immediately grokkable. Huh. The upshot of that is to make it feel if the past is a foreign country, so must be the future. Oh, that's interesting. And that's what this feels like. It feels like the future as a foreign country. And I think part of that is uh, that uh, grammar you were talking about. That is interesting. You know, one of the things that uh, if you read closely in the book, there's almost no dialogue attribution. <laughs> and and the more I think about it, the more I realize that dialogue attribution. So there's this, you know, old injunction not to use said bookisms and Tom Swifties that you, you should dialogue attribution should disappear. Uh, don't do that, he said. Why not, she asked. Or why not, she said. Uh, because, he said. And the, the, they just, even though they're repetitious, they disappear. And what you don't want is, uh, you shouldn't do that, he expostulated. Why not, she queried. Because, he responded. Uh, and and the idea is that the author is lazily allowing the, um, the, the attribution to carry the freight that should be in the words. And what I realized is that if you challenge yourself to remove as much attribution as possible... First of all, the dialogue has to be a lot more distinctive. And second of all, that the dialogue often blends very neatly into action. So you can say, don't do that. She turned around uh, angrily. Don't ever do that. And now we know who's talking, even though there's no attribution. And you could have, don't do that, she said. She turned around angrily. Don't ever do that. But the she said is completely extraneous to that sentence. And it's hard to realize that you don't need it. Now, I'm always a fan of Brian Eno's aphorism from the, the oblique strategies to, to, to be the first person to not do something that no one else has ever thought of not doing before. <laughs> you know, I, I love oblique strategies. You can get it on your iPhone now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's beautiful. I think that uh, this book has many things at its heart, but... At the very heart, one of the things that's at the very heart of this book keys off of one of my favorite quotes from Italo Sfebo, who was James Joyce's translator Hmm. in Italy, wrote a wonderful book called The Conscience of Zeno. Mm -hmm. And uh, Zeno, he's always smoking the last cigarette. Uh, He said, life is the disease that admits but one cure. (laughs) Ha! Ha! (laughs) <laughs> and I think that that is a, a, a key point in this book. Yeah, it's funny. So science fiction has some technology that is meant to be metaphorical and about the world as we live in it. Mm-hmm. And some science fiction that's kind of, um, you know, atmospheric. Mm-hmm. Some technology that's atmospheric that's just kind of there around the margins to kind of make the – get flesh out the world. And – some of the readers of this book have talked about the idea that that um, people can cure death mm-hmm. in this book, and some have talked about the three D printing and additive manuf- and and kind of on demand manufacturing elements. And I wrote a book about curing death down in the Magic Kingdom, and I wrote a book about three D printing makers. Um, and I don't think this is a book about either of those. I think that those are the uh, those are just there for verisimilitude, so to speak. That if there's a thing that this a technology that this is about. It's about the network tool's ability 
to coordinate us to improve our logistics. That um, bureaucracy. Uh, it's about. <laughs> that's, the, that's not the nice about, way to say it. Whoop! Uh, it's about the. It's about um, what happens. What. What the minimum viable bureaucracy is for projects of increasing ambition as networks come along. So you take a thing like GitHub or Wiki or, or you know, the Wiki platform, MediaWiki mm-hmm. and, and, you know, um, the, the idea of wikis. And what they let you do is organize the labor of lots of humans with less bureaucracy to do more ambitious things, right? It reduces the coordination costs among us. And... Um, we are now able to make an encyclopedia with the kind of bureaucracy we used to have for a bake sale, right? That's not nil bureaucracy. And in fact, the bureaucratic infighting can be awfully vicious in either a bake sale or a, or a, a <laughs> Wikipedia-style project. But um, the amount of hierarchy and the amount of surrender of your personal autonomy that you have to tolerate in order to do ever more ambitious things is in freefall. And this is a remarkable shift in our world, because if you think about uh, abundance and scarcity, they're, they're in a kind of triangle, mm-hmm. right? On, on one end is what we want. So Keynes wrote this essay in 1930 that predicted that his grandchildren by, by our era would work 15-hour work weeks because th- they would be able to produce everything they needed to meet their material needs, any conceivable material needs, and moreover, would struggle really to find meaning in their life making art. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and when people ask themselves about the Keynesian paradox, the the customary answer is that Keynes underestimated the elasticity of our desires. That in the presence of more material goods, we wanted more material goods, and that our appetite has kind of no bottom in sight. And there have been lots of writers who've written about um, engineering our material wants. You know, it's like a tenet of Buddhism, and Mary Kondo has made a house cleaning business out of it. And there's, you know, a, you have Huxley writing about uh, the engineering of the psyche of the population. So that's one corner of abundance. Another corner of abundance is what we can make. And that's 3D printing, it's makers, it's, it's increased production, and we've got lots of that. But the other corner, the corner that is actually the one that is most uh, alive in our world today, that our world has been most rewritten by in the decades since the uh, information revolution took hold, is coordination. And coordination, it's like the ancient project of our species, right? Like the most, uh, the, the thing that distinguishes us from our hominid ancestors is the neocortex, mm-hmm. the new bark that wraps around our brain that mediates our social relationships so that we can collaborate one, one another to do things that transcend the limits of an individual, to be superhuman. Mm-hmm. And that superhumanness has always required a tolerance for the subjugation of your will, uh, and particularly where we supercharged it with the Industrial Revolution, we did so by decomposing uh, craft tasks into small um, uh, industrial tasks. So rather than having one craftsperson who made a door, who could on a day when the weather was fine go outside to paint and on a day when the weather was poor come inside to work on the hardware, rather uh, we have an assembly line where you do these alienated subtasks that r- afford you no autonomy and any autonomy actually breaks the system. If you go out for a cigarette break, you know, in the middle of the, in the middle of the assembly line, the assembly line breaks down. You have a Lucy situation. You have a Lucy situation. So, you know, you have the motto of steampunk magazine, love the machine and hate the factory, which is about the idea that we can use networks to coordinate our labor without having to, um, 
subjugate our will to get without hierarchy the material abundance that the Promethean left has promised us since the earliest days. You know, if you look at the split between the Promethean and the green left, the green left says we need degrowth. We need to re return to a kind of bourgeois shire, a, cra a craftsperson artisanal uh, world where we produce uh, using more traditional, less uh, technologically intense methods but where somehow inconveniently about six billion of us will just have to disappear, right? And then you have the Promethean. We're working on that. Well, <laughs> right? And then, and then you have the Promethean left, which historically has said, we will elevate the peasants to live as lords, not bring down the lords to live as peasants. And the answer from the green left is, where do you get enough refrigerators for 1.6 billion Chinese peasants without destroying the ozone layer and the climate and what have you? And the Promethean left can now say, actually, um, the ownership uh, and the, the, the property relationships that we think of as being part of our abundance are actually a problem, not because we don't want refrigerators or lawnmowers or cars, but because owning a car when you don't need the car is a burden, not a benefit. Like having to figure out where to keep your car when you're not driving it is a pain in the ass. What we really want is a car whenever we want it. And that, you know, in a market economy, that produces a kind of rentier system where we're all tenants of fleets that are owned by distant, you know, transhuman artificial life forms called limited liability corporations that use this as their inconvenient gut flora. But in a non-market system, <laughs> right, we can coordinate the the destiny of our material objects so that we all have them whenever we need them. They are these this probabilistic kind of uh, non-deterministic cloud of material objects that we can reach into and pluck exactly what we want and not the third best example of a lawnmower, which is all we can afford because we're not groundskeepers, but a lawnmower of such surpassing uh, technical brilliance that it's a joy to use. And when we're done, it just evaporates back into the mass of people who might need lawnmowers. And that is a Promethean vision of abundance. It's like the Zipcar version of fully automated leisure communism, right? And it, realizing that in science fiction, I think, is a... Um, it's a very signature science fiction move because it is cleaving a technological phenomenon from its social and economic arrangements to ask really to what extent is this an epiphenomenon of our markets or our, or our mores and to what extent is it a thing that can be brought into any situation and used there in some better, more interesting way. And that's the, that's the story that I'm telling here. At, at one point, one of your protagonists asks which are more important, human rights or property rights? And that's a thing I stole from Stephen Bruce. Mm. Um, and it's a, a, an old shibboleth of the left that I think bears um, uh, resurgence. Mm -hmm. That uh, And so Bruce and I were talking, you know, he's a Trotskyist fantasy writer. You can tell Trotskyist fantasy writers because they have the right <laughs> ratio of lords to vassals in their fantasy novels. Everyone else gets the number of lords grossly wrong <laughs> compared to the number of vassals. And... Um, and and Bruce and I were talking and I and he and we were talking about the left and the right and I said I don't even know if I know those terms have meaning anymore and he said nonsense those terms mean exactly what they meant when they were coined in the French Revolution and there is a simple litmus test for asking for determining whether someone is on the right or the left you ask what is more important property rights or human rights if the answer is property rights are a human right you are on the right and if the answer is anything else, including property rights are more important than human rights, but not that property rights are a human right, then you can be on the left. And that's that to me was a an absolute eye opener. What a what a what a lovely compact rule of thumb. I I think that uh, 
you're fantastic at finding and salting your, uh, telling your story with uh, aphorisms and, and neologisms too. One of the things I noticed, there's a great paragraph early on where just some of the words you created were doing the storytelling. I think that's a really interesting process. Well, it's, you know, it's what Joe Walton calls incluing. Mm-hmm. You know, the classic example uh, is Heimlein's The Door Irist Opened, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just choosing uh, words that that can carry some of the texture of the of the world. You know, which is a thing that science fiction writers need to do a little more than other than other kinds of writers. You know, a historical fiction writer might use period language or esoteric descriptive elements to set a scene, mm-hmm. but a science fiction writer uses those things to get your imagination working, reverse engineering the world the science fiction writer is telling you about because, you know, we are long past the days of the scientific romance in which it is acceptable to explicitly describe the world, you know, that that even that... Well, Bob. Yeah, well, or, or even like three pages of, of, you know, excerpt from the Encyclopedia Galactica at the beginning of the book, you know, even the Star Wars crawl is 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 considered passe. And so... We do a lot of brushstroking, right? A lot of little this, little that to kind of give you a, a hint of what the world looks like and to, to make you start imagining, to, playing the game with the author of filling in the blanks. That's right, because at any science fiction novel we read, we're constantly thinking, how did we get here? How did we get here? How did we get here? Mm-hmm. I, and so uh, give us uh, this, your world is uh, split uh and a kind of a dilemma uh, between the default and the walkway. Explain to us, uh, give us an overview of what that is. Sure. So it's said, you know, in the not too distant future where um, climate ravages uh, soldier on, where automation continues to reduce the number of people who are actually needed by the super rich to maintain their quality of life, uh, where even the number of people needed to hang around looking for work to keep the people who do work in line uh, is is met and exceeded by the total population, but where the population just stubbornly refuses to to you know disappear now that they're no longer of need of use to their social betters, and against that backdrop, many of them form a kind of bohemian temporary autonomous zone. You know, in the in the hack and bay sense, they opt out of society. They become kind of high tech hobos. They find brownfield sites, super fun sites that are the uh, wastelands of post-industrial late-stage capitalism that exist in in with in abundance without measure and on these they use stolen software and the waste stream the exhaust stream of society to erect elaborate beautiful wonderful buildings and communities that are luxurious and sensuous and that are centers of play and critically, because this is made out of garbage on blighted land, if someone comes along and lays claim to it and insists that you'd better hand over the garbage in the blighted land, rather than fighting with them, you can just walk away. You can do a jujitsu thing of getting out of the way of someone who's, who's throwing a punch at you and letting them fall over their own feet. And that is a relatively stable relationship, which is a thing that a great critic called Henry Farrell who runs a, an academic blog called uh, Crooked Timber, 
he called into question. He said, how easily would they let them leave? Like, why would they let them go? And I think that even the most oppressive societies have always had bohemias, provided that they were escape valves rather than festering sources of radicalism. And that this is a, this is a relatively harmless bohemia that, that bleeds off the, the most you know, restless of the, of the people who are no longer needed by the power elites. But uh, then a group of scientists joined them. And there are scientists who had been working in the world of the rich, the default world, on what amounted to practical immortality. And uh, when they realize that they're engaged in a, uh, an exercise in allowing the rich to speciate from the rest of us, to form an immortal you know, clique of super beings against whom we will be mere mayflies, they realize they can no longer be complicit in that. They steal the secret of eternal life, which they, after all, are, are the ones who discovered it, and they take it with them to the walkaways. And when the super rich realize that they're going to have to spend all of eternity with the rest of us, it triggers all-out war with hellfire missiles and railguns and all the rest of it. One of the aspects of this book, uh, it's called Walk Away, and I think you do a great job of addressing not only giant macro social problems in a really engaging and fun way because your dialogue is snappy and it's full of snark. Very important <laughs> ingredient in all science fiction these days apparently that the idea of walkway doesn't apply just to society. It also applies within the individual when you find yourself faced with uh, you're an inclination to do something stupid. <laughs> right. You have to learn to say, wait, that's stupid. Don't do that. And that's a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah, the walkaways in, uh, are a spiritual descendant in some ways of the, the current uh, so-called rationalist movement, mm -hmm. who are people who are trying to operationalize the, the working hypotheses of behavioral economics, which is really about cataloging the systematic misjudgments cognitive biases that we are prone to. <laughs> and, you know, behavioral economics, it's an interesting discipline in that it comes out of the business world. And if you went for an MBA until pretty recently, in the morning you would go to a class where they would explain to you that human beings are rational actors and that society is best run by assuming that everyone acts to maximize their own benefit and that whatever someone is doing, it is to their benefit, by def in their view, to their benefit, by definition. And so any kind of intervention, to, you know, paternalistic intervention to try to improve people's choices is, uh, is fruitless and even, and even wicked. And then in the afternoon, you go to a class of uh, marketing which would explain to you how to trick people into buying stuff they didn't want, right? And so long as like you kept them in two different, your notes in two different binders, you could resolve this, this tension just by not thinking too hard about it. But behavioral economics starts to challenge this with empirical laboratory experiments about how people actually act in the world and whether our assumptions of the human being as the economic maximizer, the benefit maximizer is a good model. And out of this now comes this movement that's trying to actually produce a benefit maximization strategy where we recognize that we are frail and that we are self-deceiving and that our self-deception, although it has some adaptive characteristics that make uh, us better, you know, we one of the things that we've been talking about, uh, I've been touring with John Scalzi and we've been talking a lot about denial because we've both written books about denial. This is in part a book about denial, is that... Denial is pro-survival in the event that you don't know what to do about something. 
because doing anything might change the landscape enough that something suggests itself, whereas doing nothing probably won't get you anywhere. But denial can also be counter-survival because it can be an excuse for taking no action when the action involved is merely uncomfortable rather than impossible. And so here we are in this climate deadlock where the climate, where, where we're in a race to, to get to like peak indifference to climate change where, you know, will, will the moment at which we can no longer deny climate change come before or after the irrevocable moment that leads to the end of the human species, right? I mean, that's the, that's like our, our, our present day, you know, um, uh, race against time. And, you know, the, the rationality movement is trying to like use rhetoric, debate, forensics, argument to try and strengthen our ability to confront reality as it is, to, to, to be something like empiricists of ideology, which is mm -hmm. always a tricky thing, right? Because every ideology insists that it's empirical. You know, the whole <laughs> Marxist notion of scientific history, which is echoed in, in um, you know, in, in Asimov. That is, a, I, I've never understood why that's called scientific, because it seems to me that there aren't falsifiable hypotheses that are subject to adversarial peer review after experiment. And without that, I don't know how you call it scientific. This book addresses something because we always look at any problem as a dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. Die, that means two. There's right. this solution or that solution. Right. And that's a big, huge problem for us because most problems are trilemmas. There's generally a third way out. Yeah, I mean, I am of the opinion that uh, complex dynamic systems are things that you need strategies for rather than plans. That the first, the first casualty of any battle is the plan of attack. And so wasting a lot of time on detailed maps to get you from A to Z are pretty pointless. It's, it's better to have a kind of hill climbing strategy where you know roughly which direction Z is and you try to keep moving that way even if there's some reversals because the, the rigid planning project or the rigid planning tactic will end up just you know eating your life with planning and still leave you more or less deploying heuristics because the plan will, will not suit the territory. It strikes me that with science fiction, the technologies and the sciences are addressed are astronomy, you know, mechanical technology, the kind of stuff that gets us out into space, 3D printing. But this book, the technology in this book, or the science in this book, is the dismal science. And you are, and as your inspiration, you take not Einstein, but Thomas Piketty. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so what it is, is we're getting back to that coordination question, right? Mm -hmm. What this is a book about is about the uh, collective, the, the project of getting people to work on something with you, mm. right? Very old, very important project. It's what, it's what economics uh, concerns itself with. And, you know, Piketty was hugely influential on me in writing this book, in part because he, um, has, an he has a hypothesis that he tries out on the data that he's collected, and he collected better data than anyone before or since. You know, he's he's um, used uh, dozens of grad students over more than a decade to build and normalize a, a data series showing capital flows over 300 years across the world. He predicts that over time, 
the rate of growth in an economy will always be outstripped by the rate of return on capital, and that therefore people who are rich will tend to become richer, and that even people who invent amazing things and do amazing things will not. And he points out that this is a moral crisis in market capitalism, because in an unequal society where you no longer believe in the divine right of kings, there has to be some other reason that some people are well off and other people are not, right? Otherwise, it's just unfair. And if it's unfair, then you might as well go and take their stuff. So what is it that makes it fair for some people to have so much more than others? And the answer is that they have done extraordinary things. And by um, rewarding those who do extraordinary things, we incentivize them to do it. This is the traditional model of economics and the theory of human nature that uh, incentives matter and uh, giving people market incentives causes them to do more of what you want, which seems to be broadly true with some pretty important notable exceptions. And Piketty contrasts uh, in a very telling passage, contrasts three different people. One is Lillian Betancourt, who's the heiress of the L'Oreal fortune, the richest woman on earth, who has literally never done a day's work in her life. And one is Bill Gates, who founded the most successful company in the history of the world. And Lillian Betancourt and Bill Gates over the same period of time, Lillian Betancourt made more money than Bill Gates, right? So doing nothing but choosing some people to manage your money makes more money than founding the most significant company in the history of the world. But what's more interesting is the third person she, he contrasts, which is Bill Gates after he retired to become an investor. Because when Bill Gates stopped running the most successful company in the world and just moved money around, he made more money still. Right over the same period, he became the the amount of growth his fortune experienced over the period when he ceased to make things and merely became a plumber of finance was uh, greater. And so Piketty's thesis is that without some reform, over time you will always get increasing concentration of wealth, and that increasing concentration of wealth is politically destabilizing. It, it, you know, his touchstone is always the amount of um, wealth disparity, France 1789, which is a, a comparison I fear is lost on people reading the English translation. But in France, it's a very resonant time because it's the moment at which people got so pissed off with wealth disparity, they started building guillotines. And his thesis is that at a certain point, wealth disparity creates massively destable, unstable political systems that cause upheavals that kill millions of people until the amount of capital destroyed through war and crisis is so great that the rich can no longer influence the policy sphere to the point where we can't um, do what's better for everyone for broadly shared prosperity. And that over time, even after those orgies of capital destruction, you have capital accumulation because the rate of growth is never greater than the, than the uh, rate of return on capital. And uh, then you get back into another unstable situation, another grotesque orgy of violence, another era of mass death and destruction. And, you know, Piketty is very urgent in his warning. And I wanted to capture one of those moments that's right on the cusp of when things fall apart. The new book by Cory Doctorow is Walk Away. Thank you for joining me, Cory. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.